You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Rayfield Brown, who's in the Bay Area today, that is bedecked by a cloudless blue sky. Ah, it's spring. Uh, Today, we have a changing of the guard. I'm joined by author and constitutional law scholar, Corey Brett Schneider, who's written some kind of book. What book have you written, Corey? I just couldn't remember the name of it. It's called uh, The Oath in the Office. Oh. And it's a guide to the Constitution for future presidents. Everything you need to know about the Constitution if you want to be president of the United States. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, as you could guess, everything that this president does not know. <laughs> oh, I'm guessing that for somebody like Cory Booker, for Kamala Harris, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, this is bedside reading at the moment. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, I think there is a real question in this country whether or not the um the i mean i think it should be of course i should say and for donald trump there's an audio book so he can <laughs> you know, he doesn't read. Uh, not that, <laughs> that he's likely to be able to stay focused but i think the real question uh, about these candidates is whether or not they are in some ways going to tradi- continue in the tradition of trump in the sense of disregarding the rule of law the process with an aim towards achieving their policy goals um, and you know, there's a tradition in this country, uh, you know, the, the Debs tradition of not loving the Constitution. So my worry, frankly, is that some of the candidates that I might otherwise like, like Sanders, um, mm-hmm. I have suspicions about, although I'm not sure. Uh, you know, it's still time to, to tell. Corey, is Corey, that, let, Trump Corey, Corey let, let me jump in. Yep. You, you, you've, you've gone off too soon, sir. You've <laughs> gone into the topic of the show. We're still doing the introductions. You're giving oh, me full okay, and sorry. frank thought-out answers. Don't okay, do that sorry. just yet. All right. And on the other side of the land... I'm just a wordy professor. You, you are. But, Corey, where exactly are you, by the way? Right uh, I'm at uh, Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. Oh, okay, so Providence, Rhode Island. And then in London... On uh, the, the grayer side of the Atlantic, we have Emma <laughs> Definitely is. Say hello, folks. Hello. Corey, you missed hello. your mark, sir. Hello. All right, good, good. <laughs> now, 
Emma, considering that Corey went on at length about his works and you are new to the show, so why don't you tell us um, exactly what you do? So I am a political journalist and political consultant uh, and I do what people pay me to do mostly. Um, I write a lot of articles, usually about the Labour Party, quite often tearing my hair out. Mm -hmm. um, and then I de-stress by writing about anything else, um, right. including theatre which is um, one of my loves. As it is mine also. Um, but maybe we can talk about that in Takeaways of the Week. In a week that has seen the Cleveland Browns announce their intention to win the Super Bowl by signing Odell Beckham Jr. And the UK government admitting that Spotify and Netflix could be bucked to UK citizens on holiday in Europe in the event of a no deal. Just when will this Brexit madness stop? We ask, what will the immediate political future hold in Blighty and in the land of opportunity? On a point of order, Mr Speaker, I profoundly regret the decision that this House has taken tonight. I continue to believe that by far the best outcome is that the United Kingdom leaves the European Union in an orderly fashion with a deal. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that the deal we've negotiated is the best and indeed the only deal available. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Mr Speaker, I would like to set out briefly how the government means to proceed. Two weeks ago, I made a series of commitments from this dispatch box regarding the steps we would take in the event that this House rejected the deal on offer. I stand by those commitments in full. Therefore, tonight, we will table a motion for debate tomorrow to test whether the House supports leaving the European Union without a deal on the 29th of March. The Leader of the House will shortly make an emergency business statement confirming the change to tomorrow's business. This is an issue of grave importance for the future of our country. Just like the referendum, there are strongly held and equally legitimate views on both sides. For that reason, I can confirm that this will be a free vote on this side of the House. I... <clears throat> and I have personally struggled with this choice, as I'm sure many other honourable members will. I'm passionate about delivering the result of the referendum, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I equally passionately believe that the best way to do that is to leave in an orderly way with a deal. Yeah. And I still believe that there is a majority in the House for that course of action. Emma, Theresa May says that she understands the voice of the country. Quite simply, does she? What is the mood of the country at the moment? And give us an idea of the Brexit arithmetic in Parliament. Um, the Brexit arithmetic in Parliament is probably the slightly easier question in that nothing quite adds up. Um, mm -hmm. There is a majority to stop almost every option. There is no majority to take anything forward. Um, so we've got a lot of people in Parliament saying, well, we don't really want that, i.e. last night we had another vote where she tried to bring back her deal um, mm -hmm. and Parliament voted it down again by a smaller but still significant majority. Um, and they're voting today. They will almost certainly vote today to say no deal um, should be off the table. Now, that's all very well, but that's like me saying, voting to say that I should only weigh eight stone. It's a lovely idea, but it's not my default. Mm -hmm. um, so no deal is what happens if we don't have anything else to, to say 
uh, that we, to go to and if we don't mm-hmm. extend so tomorrow there'll be another vote um, on whether we should extend article 50 that of course is not our choice um, we that's a, we would have to ask the European Parliament if they're willing to let us extend article 50 but, um, but surely but surely though Emma they're going to say yes because they're not at all frustrated or pissed off by us in this whole process are they no you know, they, 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 they are that... so pleased with how we're comporting <laughs> ourselves <laughs> that yeah that they are impressed uh you know bowled over I would say no I mean the problem is is they are they're not willing to give us another three six whatever months just to keep doing the same thing so Mm. if we want to extend we have there has to be a reason that reason either has to be that there is a deal we can get that will get passed through parliament that doesn't seem to be on the cards at the moment that there is going to be a general election or that there's going to be a second referendum a final say is there another possibility which is that the or maybe this is part of the possibility of the new parliament that it it just decides to remain as a result of well, the election and whatever the there are people talking about revoking article 50 because there is also talk within that the european parliament would say no to an extension mm. if to avoid a no deal we would then have to revoke article 50 um and then but that could be re-invoked at a time that we'd actually worked out what the hell it was we were asking for. Um, so, and basically, we triggered Article 50 way, way too soon. I mean, mm-hmm. for me, any time in my lifetime is too soon, to be fair. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, we shouldn't have triggered Article 50 until we had a much, much clearer idea mm. of what it was that we, A, that we wanted, but also that we could get the European Union to agree to. Mm. Um, so, it, it's possible that they may revoke... If there's a second referendum and it were won by Remain, then that would that would automatically trigger a revoking of Article mm. 50. Let, let's just say that um, there is some kind of temporary revoking or an extension. Uh, Emma, are we not going to see the wrath of at least some parts of the, I was going to say British, but I'll, I'll scratch that, English electorate? Uh, saying that the politicians couldn't come to a decision, there were hard choices to be made, um, democracy be damned. They're, they're, you know, they've driven a coach and horses through the will of some elements, some very vocal elements of the English electorate. You, are, I think whatever happens, um, that's where the public is at. The public ha- are a combination of frustrated and bored, which, as anyone who's taught... <laughs> you know young kids knows is never a good thing um so you know they they are desperate for the politicians to just get on with it even even the remainers want some sort of way out of where we are at the moment but the problem is is that they have also been told that pretty much anything that isn't a very very hard brexit is uh a Betrayal. A, a betrayal so mm. there are going to be people who no matter what brexit looks like will consider that to be the case and will be up in arms so i'm the idea that this is all going to be settled and sorted at the end of a process is for the birds really mm. Mm. can i can i ask you a question about the i mean this is a sort of pulling back question from an outsider very much but the assumption often is that the democratic thing to do is to follow the referendum but the, my understanding of the legal status of 
parliament is that it can't cede its sovereignty, right? Parliament is sovereign. So any promise that this was going to be binding, to me, I mean, this is a blunt way of putting it, was a lie. Uh, it's parliament that's mm. going to make the decision in the end. It, and, it always was you know, the idea advisory. of deferring to this referendum, which isn't part of your legal process, is advisory at best. I don't mm. see why you're bound by it at all. You're <laughs> speaking as a constitutional <laughs> scholar, not a politician. Um, <laughs> the people in Parliament, technically, yes. I mean, we don't really have a constitution, right. certainly not in the way that you guys do. Right. Um, but also, you know, they, you can say advisory referendum until you're blue in the face. Right. But in terms of honouring the democratic process that gets them into parliament every five years, you know, they will lose their seats um, or some mm. of them feel that they will lose their seats. Now that actually is not necessarily true. Um, there is some research that says, particularly in the labor seats where they voted leave, that despite those seats voting a majority leave, their labor voters voted majority remain. So it's incredibly complicated, yeah. but mm. the political answer is that, Nobody considered that an advisory referendum and it was not treated as such. And the government said we will implement it yeah. largely because the government very arrogantly assumed it would win. It is just such a terrible decision making procedure to do anything by referendum. I'm such an Completely. opponent of it. And there's a reason why we have representative democracy. It's to avoid exactly this. And you're all learning it the hard way, I'm afraid. Yeah. And we keep doing it to ourselves. <laughs> but, but you know what, though? Um, this is I'm, I'm sat in the state of the prop. You know, so mm. the, there is there are referenda um, in many states in, in the United States and California is is in large part kind of governed by various propositions yeah. that are put on ballot papers. So um, we're hardly unique in that in that regard. But it's a terrible, terrible part of our system, I think. And and for the same reason, you know, when we've used it, it's often gone awry. So Colorado at one point puts gay rights up for a vote and passes this terrible amendment to their constitution uh, that, you know, says basically you don't have rights of employment or rights uh, in housing, mm. uh, rights to be a teacher. Uh, and it's only our Supreme Court in that instance that saves us. And California, I guess I'd say the same thing, that the sort of decimation of the California state education system was largely through, you know, tax reform, what it, what's called tax reform. But responsible mm. legislatures, you know, it's up to representatives to sort of, I think, keep us from the worst instincts uh, that you get from referenda. You get very little good reform, I think, that way. You get uneducated votes, often manipulated by rich people. And, you know, I think you're seeing a, the hugest example, maybe in world history, in Brexit, but there are mm. many mm. within our system, yeah. too. I mean, you're right. It's part of our system, but it's a, a terrible part, I think. Yeah, I, I listen. Yeah, you're, you're completely right. Um, and you see that played out on the very local level in American politics all the time with um, affluent parts of cities um, seceding from, from, from wider municipality bodies and stuff because of direct democracy, so to speak. So they take the tax, tax base away. And that happens all the time uh, kind of in the United States because of, of, of that type of thing on a local level. But the one thing I'll just come, come back and say that I slightly disagree with you, Emma, with, with a little bit of the, with, in terms of the nuance of actually what you said. Because you said that this wasn't treated as an advisory vote i would say for remainers it actually was because the way that they very casually uh, had that campaign back in 2016 
Um, they didn't exactly put their backs into it. And also, and even by the, by the levers, in that there was no solid definite direction of travel in terms of what leave meant that it was all in in hindsight take and, and this is hindsight taken as a little bit of a lark in that this is not going to pass nobody thought that we were ever going to uh, vote to leave and there were not concrete proposals about northern ireland nobody thought about northern ireland the dup didn't even think about northern mm. ireland back then um there were, and you had staunch leavers now saying things like no one's talking about leaving the single market because nobody actually thought that it was actually going to pass. So whilst um, I agree to in large part that this wasn't, um, we had to say it's an advisory vote for, for constitutional reasons and stuff, but actually we did in large part, the political establishment did treat it as such. I don't know that they treated it as an advisory vote. They treated it as a foregone conclusion that it turned out to be wrong. Um, mm. So, yeah, they did. I mean, the Remain campaign was dreadful. Um, they made a lot of mistakes. Um, there's a very good series of blogs on the Open Labour website. Um, I am co-chair of Open Labour, so I should just uh, announce that. Um, by Oliver Coppard, who worked for the Remain campaign, and he's you know, sort of done some really interesting soul-searching on what they got wrong. Um, so I highly recommend those. But the um, there there were so many questions that were actually asked during that referendum that everybody who voted was probably answering a slightly different question. And they certainly weren't necessarily answering the question on the ballot paper. And that's the problem, because there are a million different flavours of leave. Um, and there were actually several different flavours of Remain. We just only offered them the one. What, what are um, the different flavours? If I walked in, like, to a grocery store and you see all the Ben and Jerry's kind of lined up, what do we get? <laughs> Less shit, more shit, real shit and bad shit. Are, they, are these the flavours of, of leave? That's pretty much it, okay. yeah. I mean, there's, there's the leave a little tiny bit, but stay in the customs union and single market. Mm. Um, so basically, keep all of the economic benefits... But be a rule taker rather than a rule maker. So, so Norway so plus plus, as that's sometimes called. Completely out the window with that. Completely out the yeah. window. So that's basically what you lose. There is sovereignty, but what you gain is the the the. We don't take the big well, bigger the, economic hit. There the, 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 there is no gain because it's just a continuum of where we are. <laughs> it's a, I mean, it's a gain from the other options. <laughs> so then there's the stay in the customs union, but leave the single market. Yeah. That way you have uh, freedom of uh, movement ends, so you have more control over your borders, but you still have to um, take the trade rules. Mm. Uh, and, you, and you have to pay for the privilege as well. Sorry, say again? We're still gonna, and we're still going to have to pay, pay for the privilege. You still have, we still have to throw some money to Brussels for that well we will be paying some money to brussels unless we do an actual hard brexit and even then we have to pay our our current mm. obligations because they'll sue us and we would both then have to pay all their money and the court costs um but we 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 want to be part of some of the things in the eu come what may things like euroton which is how we transport nuclear materials incredibly important for say cancer patients who need radiation therapy and um, we need to stay a part of that organization 
that organisation needs to be funded. We would pay for some of that funding. So no matter what happens, some money will be leaving the UK shores and going into Europe. Emma, isn't part of the problem here... I'm going to say a large part of the problem is that we live in a world now and it's uh, echoed in America with the rise of Trump uh, and, and the, well, the rise of the Tea Party and then Trump, that people want simple solutions to complex problems. Right. Don't give me the detail. Don't hear from an expert. Mm. This is what mm. I want. OK. And the problem is with Remain is inherent in that it's not an easy sell other than saying let's put our hands around our european brethren and whatever and let's just cuddle them and if we cuddle them tightly uh, we'll probably not uh, go back to war as we did 70 years ago <laughs> right it's it's a harder sell isn't it yeah. because it is things like oh we've got um, a european uh, space agency right we've committed to spending x amount of money on that um we're going to continue to do that because research is good. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it all just... speaks to too why the referendum is such a terrible way to do this because it's just too complicated for people to process it in a way that's going to lead to an up or down vote. And mm. I think that's the role of representatives is to do the processing and to, you know, campaign on values maybe and broad principles, but to know the details of the policy in its and outs. And the idea that that was left up to the country in this moment of voting, I think, is. A disaster. I mean, why could you not campaign that way? I, this is a naive question, maybe on the political question, instead of keeping it at this conceptual level. But what about a campaign that just said that, that these people have made a historic mistake for the next parliament, uh, that the campaign would go, I guess, Labour's campaign could say, this is a historic mistake. It's an embarrassment in the world. We were lied to and told that it was binding. Corey. And we're going to remain. Corey. <laughs> You're going to tell people that they were stupid. You yeah. can't do that. Yeah, that yeah, basically you, is the problem. <laughs> yeah. You, know, you were you, stupid, change your mind is no, really the not the world's most persuasive argument. <laughs> not, not the decision, the process. The reason that all of those card games you see on the streets uh, in films work is because people do not want to believe that they're capable of being duped. <laughs> and this is three card Monty just on a really big scale. But don't so, they know they were duped at this point? <laughs> no, no, absolutely no, not. No. They are 100% really? convinced. Yeah, yeah. Ab absolutely. And, the, and the more you prove... These are articles of faith. These are so, so many articles of, of faith here, not, not a fact. And one of the things which I don't think gets, at least from the outside, from the outside world looking in at Britain, what a lot of people don't realise is that from the 1980s, when Thatcher was still in power... There's been a steady diet of misinformation told to the British public via right wing, via some right wing newspapers, of which the Daily Mail and the Sun would be the chief culprits. So you have people saying that and believing it because I've been hearing this for 30 plus years that the European Union is trying to straighten our bananas. <laughs> This is a real thing, Corey. Yeah. You've got to understand, there's been headline after headline uh, saying things like up yours Delors and Jack Delors was the yeah. ex-head of the you know, European Parliament, etc. And people believe that... Um, you want to get rid of, they want to get rid of pink glasses. Exactly. <laughs> that, you know, um, they want to get rid of British plugs. This is a serious thing <laughs> for some people. And, and you say, but... They haven't done it. And, yeah. then, and then they're stumped. People so, go mad about the colour of their passport, honestly. 
Exactly. Yeah. We have to have um, a debate which is slightly away from the exact uh, machinations which will happen in Parliament in, in the next two days because we're going to be held to hostage to fortune if we really go down that route. So <laughs> this has been a, a good way of us to talk about Brexit without going into the detail. Uh, but uh, quickly, Emma, what has been the effect of the independent group on shaping Labour's attitudes towards a second referendum? Because to me, it seems like they have given them a little bit of a nudge, but now they're a fart in the wind and they're gone. Yeah, I mean, TIG gave the Labour leadership a massive scare. There Mm. may be others that would still go um, and are being kept in because the leadership um, moved on a second referendum. They seem to have wobbled a little bit on that in the last couple of days, but they've been... I mean, Keir Starmer just stood up and clarified in Parliament that Labour is very much in favour now of pursuing a second referendum. Um, It's not... That's not the only reason people were leaving and wanted to leave. There, you know, the Labour Party is having a terrible crisis over anti-Semitism at the moment, um, and more widely about just the culture of party meetings, party events, which have become very divided. Um, it, we're it's a, it's a party that's very very split, um, and that's really hard to take when you're on the sharp end of it. Um, so, and MPs are on the particularly sharp end of it. Um, some of the people who went off to the independent group have been threatened with deselections. Um, so they were like, well, I'm going to lose my job anyway. Might as well stick with my principles and get out of this toxic atmosphere. Um, I was, I was going to quickly just jump in there, uh, Emma, because there obviously is a parallel uh, to do with anti-Semitism, mm. uh, where does an- anti-Semitism start and end, and where does legitimate criti- criticism of the state of Israel mm. uh, start and end um, over in the states? Uh, Corey, could you give us um, a little bit of a uh, your take on the Democratic Party's issue to do with new Congress people being, let's say, quite strident in their anti-Israeli views, and and how the Democratic Party establishment has maybe dealt with that in the last week. Uh, there was a controversy that surrounded remarks um, about the influence specifically of AIPAC, the Israel, uh, one of the, there, there are two uh, Israeli lobbying groups in the, the United States um, that, that uh, openly lobby and have membership organizations about Israel policy. One is the biggest and the oldest called AIPAC and the other is called J Street. And um, AIPAC has had uh, according to um, this one representative that caused the controversy and outsized influence. And in particular, it was a tweet that I don't want to try to quote it because I don't want to get it wrong, but it in, involved the phrase uh, all about the Benjamins that, it, you know, there was a financial mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, basically reason for this group having such success when it came to its views on Israel policy. And then that was met with a re- very strong response from, uh, people on the right, but also within the Democratic Party, charging that this was anti-Semitic. And so there was a proposed um, resolution of condemnation that then a lot of people said, well, what about Trump, basically? What about the right wing? What about the rise of bigotry more generally in the country? And so what the Democrats opted for was a more general uh, resolution condemning uh, I don't know exactly how it was worded, but it was condemning bigotry more generally, you know, including, of course, uh, anti-Semitism, anti-Muslim bigotry. And um, so that that's where we are. And uh, 
yes. <laughs> okay, let's just um, end up because um, time, time is pressing. One last question uh, to you, Emma. Mm-hmm. Um, Parliament is going to assess its supremacy, which is something that uh, Corey reminded us of at, at the start of the show, that Parliament is sovereign. So its supremacy is trumps that of the executive. Um, and this is... Uh, been underlined now by Theresa May saying that she's going to give Tory MPs uh, a free vote in subsequent Brexit <laughs> amendments. Who will be the independent? Who will be the important members of Parliament uh, in shaping our policy and our trajectory towards Brexit? Who should we look out for? Um, well, uh, the things to look out for, I would say the Kyle Wilson compromise is something mm-hmm. that you really want to look out for. That is a, um, a a suggestion that's coming from, I think it's two Labour MPs, it might be one Labour, one Tory, um, saying, we will agree to pass your deal through Parliament if you agree to a confirmatory referendum on it. So it's saying, look, let's get to a point where we know we're not going to get no deal and then we'll either get your deal or remain and then we uh but that goes back to the people mm-hmm. um so watch what happens with that because that is seen by some as the kind of the best way to get both a, a, a deal at all and a second referendum so the people who are pure i just want a second referendum will probably consider it as a compromise. The people who are pure, um, I I want something to, ha- I want Brexit to happen, but I don't want a hard Brexit. I don't want no deal Brexit, might consider it a compromise. Um, and then if it goes back to the country, um, so that, look out for the Kyle, Kyle Wilson amendment whenever that comes up. Um, the people to watch are the people that we've been watching. Um, Dominic Grieve on the Conservative side for the Remainers. Um, David Davis changed his mind and voted in favour of May's deal, which is a very interesting because he was the first to leave May's cabinet mm. over Chequers, which is what this deal basically is. So he's clearly been on a bit of a journey. So he's worth watching. Um Watch what Labour do. Watch not just whether they whip, but what the consequences of breaking that whip might be. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are going to be some people, even in the shadow cabinet or shadow junior ministers, who will not follow the whip. Now, normally, convention would have it that they should lose their jobs. If they don't, then that's a, a message from the Labour leadership that they don't really mean it. Um, so watch mm-hmm. that. That's worth watching very closely. So it's not necessarily just who, because the who in the Labour Party is always Jeremy Corbyn um, and Keir Starmer, obviously on Brexit, but also the what. OK. All right. Let's move from Blighty, as we said, to the land of milk and honey and utter <laughs> economic opportunity. Coca-Cola. That is the yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't know which country is in more of a dire crisis. It's really hard to tell. (laughs) I still think I might vote for us. (laughs) Yeah, well, there there was um, a meme that went around the UK. Uh, So we passed Brexit earlier than you elected Trump. So in November 2016, there was a meme that went around the UK, which is... uh, the UK saying, we're going to do the most stupid thing ever. And America's like, hold my pint. Hold my beer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I share that. I mean, because at least you don't have, you know, you have a, a bad, I would say, a historically bad decision in Brexit. In, Absolutely. In that moment. 
you don't have leaders saying what we have our uh, and, you know, our, our chief executive, the president of the United States saying, which is continually an assault on everything that is basic to democracy <laughs> and every day. Well, we do have a prime minister. We've done it worse than you. Stop it. We do have a prime minister whose punchline is Brexit means Brexit. Yeah, what does that mean? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Former Vice President Joe Biden leads the 2020 Democratic field in a key state, though he has yet to announce his run for president. A new very early poll shows 27 percent of likely Democratic caucus goers in Iowa picked Biden. He has a two point lead over Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Ed O'Keefe is in Austin, Texas, where some of the Democratic hopefuls spoke out over the weekend. Ed, good morning. The former vice president isn't expected to get in for a few more weeks, and those poll numbers might actually encourage him to do so. But the other Democrats already in the race now trying to make sure that Biden doesn't steal their thunder. 2020 contenders at South by Southwest in Austin tried to avoid bringing more attention to the possibility of former Vice President Biden getting into the fray. Well, I have a lot of respect for Vice President Biden, and first we want to make sure he's getting in, um, but I can only address um, my own merit. Why are you better, more qualified, more worthy of support than the former Vice President? I'm in this race because Washington works great for the wealthy and the well-connected. It's just not working for anyone else. Meanwhile, Senator Bernie Sanders campaigned Sunday in New Hampshire. We are going to complete what we started here. Sanders, campaigning for president a second time, is once again forcing a conversation among Democrats about socialism. Now, we have potentially to come Vice President Joe Biden and the former Texas U.S. Representative Beto O'Rourke. But here are 
I'm going to take a deep breath. The Democratic runners and riders declared for 2020. John Hickenlooper, Jay Ensley, Bernie Sanders, Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, Corey Booker, Kamala Harris, Julian Castro, Tulsi Gabbard, John Delaney, Marion Wilson, Andrew Yang, Kirsten Gillibrand, Pete Buttigieg. Now, which one of those sends a shiver up your leg, Corey? Oh, I think in, in all seriousness, we're in such a crisis with this president that anybody who would win on that list, none of them sh- send a shiver up my leg. <laughs> there is no question that uh, we could draw at random from that list and we would be light years ahead of where we are now. And, you know, the discussion here, too, is about whether to focus on whoever this new person is in the policy debate or mm. whether or not to try to impeach Trump and take him down first to, you know, either soften him up for the election. Stop or... stop guessing where I'm going with my questions. Oh, <laughs> just stop, stop where I am right now. Now, you want me to um, pick? Uh, pick pick one now, and then I'm going to ask. Well, ask I, really, a I mean, to you. I mean it about fear. I don't see anybody on that list that is uh, that that Incompetent. place us in a much better position. So I, I can't. I, I honestly couldn't couldn't single anyone out. I mean, I did mention that Sanders um, has made remarks in the past that I worry about because, uh, and I'll say why. The, you know, the the current controversy over the state of emergency is a symbol mm-hmm. of what's going on here, and that. The president's used legislation to abuse it to get a policy outcome that he was denied by the Congress. And in our system, you know, we don't have uh, the sovereignty of parliament. We have uh, co-equal branches. But when the Congress says no, the core law of the Constitution says the president can't override that and simply uh, through using executive orders uh, go against congressional legislation. Now, Trump has done that in the wall case. And one controversy now is whether or not the Democrats, if they should take the White House, should do the same thing, use emergency powers to uh, do uh, environmental reform or the Green New Deal. And I guess of all of the people on the list, I want to know if, if Sanders is very clear that that's not something that he would do. Uh, there are, I think, among the left in this country, a, a sort of belief. That you you, you think San- Sanders has got the potentiality of authoritarian government in him, do you? Well, it's not authoritarian government, right? It's using legislation that's on the books in an abusive way. I guess that's what I would call it for good purposes. <laughs> and that's <laughs> okay. very different than, uh, you know, Trumpism, which is mm. using legislation on the books for fake emergencies that aren't there for purposes of, for authoritarian purposes, bigot, bigoted purposes. So I don't think that if Sanders did what I'm talking about, it has the same kind of gravity. But mm-hmm. I want to see candidates agree that even for good purposes, they're not going to abuse the process. And okay. yes, I'm not sure. Uh, Wouldn't I guess, you? I'm not sure generally, and I'm certainly not sure about about Sanders. I I'm mean, not- I, I while I agree with you, I think it's um, you need to fix some of the other stuff that makes things not work. Because mm. there's a whole bunch of reasons why it's so much harder for Democrats to pass legislation than than it is for republicans mm. and part of that is your weird two two senators even if you only represent three sheep each rule yeah. um and the other yeah and you've got a whole load of redistricting you can't issues fix that, unfortunately article five this is a you know interesting 
crazy dilemma. There's one thing you can't change, basically, in the United States Constitution, and that's the fact that each state gets two representatives. Mm. True, um, there, but there are there are a couple of workarounds. So you could, yeah, you got Puerto Rico could be made a state, DC right. could be made a state. So yeah, there are yeah. there are ways of balancing it up a little more. Right. There's also the supermajority mm. issue. Um, so right. I, mm. I am far too much of a geek about this stuff. Yeah. So the Des Moines Register and CNN have just conducted a poll, Corey, saying that Joe Biden, if he's to run, will have 27% of the vote of likely Democratic voters with um, and with Bernie Sanders on 25% of those asked. Um, with the diversity of the Democratic field in terms of the number of female candidates running and people of colour, does this mean that American politics is still a country for old white men? <laughs> I think <laughs> I did, you like, did you like my movie reference? There, yeah, it was very good. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely got that. <laughs> uh, yes, I mean, unfortunately, you know, right now we have uh, one old white man <laughs> that is particularly terrible. There would be Biden would certainly be a better one. To me, Kamala Harris is one of the people to watch who certainly doesn't fit that category. Cory Booker as well. It would be disappointing to have this incredible field of diverse candidates, all of whom have something to offer. And yeah, I really like Joe Biden. Like he seems like a sweet guy, old guy, but a sweet guy. And <laughs> all the memes, the Obama Biden memes were fabulous. And in terms of like politics, I'm probably on the same page roughly as Bernie. You know, in England, we've always been a bit further to the left. And at the moment, we're particularly far sure. to the left. I'm a bit, maybe a bit more Warren, somewhere between the two. But it would just be disappointing, I think. And it would feel like what the lesson of 2016 for the Democrats was, was don't go for a woman. And I think that's just not mm. the right lesson. And I just, it would be disappointing to watch that happen. Now, I would obviously rally behind the mm. candidate and do what I could from a distance, which is basically stay out of it. But, you know, I have this fascination for American politics, but I would love to see the Democrats, you know, go, you know, we're not going to let that one setback make us decide that what we really need is another old white dude. It's also, I mean, the worry about Biden is there's a sort of recycling effect. You know, we, we've had Bushes, we've had Clintons, yeah. and, you know, yeah. Biden is not, it's not a new family member, but a, a third term that he's part of, that's one worry. But, you know, Obama is the most president, the most popular politician in the country right now. And so that's one effect that he might get is, is the Obama effect. Yeah. My proposal is that Obama run as vice president. There's no constitutional bar on that. Uh, <laughs> so I'd like to see that team of uh, uh, Biden-Obama. That would have an energy. Uh, it would get, get rid of the problem that you're mentioning and maybe would put us back on the right track. The very fact that we have uh, Joe Biden and um, Bernie Sanders leading the poll, is that more to do with the fact that this this poll is taken in Iowa, one of the whitest states of, of the US? So hence it's reflected in, in its answers. Uh, Corey, what do you reckon? Um, you know, I guess my worry about polling generally at this stage is that it's just too early. And, mm. you know, one of the problems with, we were talking, Emma, about how American politics is covered. Uh, but, you know, I, I think one of the, the worst things that we could do at this stage is just focus on the polls and the oh, flaws God, yeah. and what they show. Because it's so early, we don't know what the policy positions of these people are. So that's the flaw, I think, in the polls. Even talking about it at this stage, we should be focused on what these people want to accomplish. Oh, completely. No, I completely agree. And, uh, you know, 
the the endless horse race nonsense right. is uh, yeah, one of the things I like about where the Democrats are at at the moment is actually you're having a conversation about policy a lot yeah. more than is standard. And you're in some ways having these so many candidates, a huge buffet of candidates, is sort of stopping the horse race talk a little bit because they have spread so much mm. between them. Uh, and yeah, OK, Biden and um, Sanders are running away with it a bit at the moment. But that's a name recognition thing as much as anything else. Mm. Uh, you know, Sanders ran last time. He's got this uh, machine ready to, uh, to go uh, and he's already got an inbuilt base of supporters. Uh, Joe Biden was the vice president. You know, everybody knows who he is. That's yeah. not going to be the case in a year. In a year, everybody is, who is still really in it, and that won't be the whole 14 or 20 as it gets to or whatever, yeah. um, we'll, we'll have a lot more name recognition. We'll have gone through debates. We'll have been tested. We'll have you know, been putting their ideas out there. So I think, I think, as you're right, talking about it now is like, you know, it's, it's as pointless as the endless debates about, oh, where are Labour in the polls? We should be elsewhere. In the and yeah, right. yet, yeah. history tells us that Labour should be further ahead in the polls yeah. than they and are the at the moment. I guess I just add as a, a final thought, because I've got to run, but the the problem in the last election was all this horse race coverage in the midst of somebody who was you know making proposals that were, I, I wouldn't even say borderline fascist, many of them were yeah, actual out-and-out fascists. And covering that as though it's, you know, let's talk about how this, how fascism is polling. Yeah. That was a huge problem, I think, of how that election was covered. Completely. And so not only should we not replicate it early on at this stage, but I, I'd like to really see a policy focus. You know, the, the polling is often wrong. There's a lot of arguments about what wrong, what wrong, wrong last time. But the, the main thing that's wrong is, is horse race coverage and yeah. not focusing on substance. Absolutely. Oh, that last point that Corey made was an interesting one about kind of horse race, uh, kind of politics. Oh, today there is definitely a media-driven kind of boom and bust when it comes to candidates. You know, a candidate now, especially in a field of, what, 15, 17, 20 candidates, I don't know how many there are. Um, so somebody can kind of come from nowhere um, on kind of media kind of trends, can't, can't they? Um, do you think we're going to end up with a candidate because of their policies or because their team is really adept at social media, that they're good on Twitter, they can mm. counterpunch, they can take the, the, the narrative of the day and craft that into their message. I think it's going to be a bit of both. Um, I don't think you can, I mean, maybe Trump, well, no, Trump does have policies. They're just terrible policies, but they appeal to a certain amount of the electorate. Um, you you have to be able to do both and and you know i've seen and and suffered at the hands of people who were really interesting politically but had no media savvy and just weren't able to 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 lead and so you can be the most interesting guy in the room um policy wise but if you can't make a good speech and if you can't counter punch on twitter uh, or employ a person who can do that well for you then you're not you're not going to get anywhere Equally, if you're all brash and bluster and don't have a policy background, uh, and as I say, mm -hmm. I may not like his policies, but Trump has a few signature policies, not least his bloody wall, um, then you are not going to get anywhere either because you have to be brash and, and in the service of something. 
So I think it, mm. it, it had you, and you've got this huge array of candidates. So it's not like you're not going to find the one that can do both. You'll probably find three or four that can do both and pick your favourite. Mm. I think we should move on uh, to our takeaways of the week because, uh, listener, Corey has had to go because, as he said at the top of the show, he's actually um, a jobbing uh, professor and he has to go and profess, I believe, <laughs> right now. So he's gone off and done that. So why don't we go on to our takeaways of the last seven days with just myself and Emma. Right then, new person. All right, this is your moment to shine, to show us your cultural and intellectual debt away from politics so tell us so one thing in the last in seven Chelsea days <laughs> nah <laughs> uh, and and uh yes no made in chelsea and who's that dreadful person whose name i can't i can't remember who comes on itv uh every morning Keith Le- oh Piers morgan um i read a lovely book this week called the cursing stone mm-hmm um, it's a really, really sweet story by a writer called Adrian Harvey, who's actually someone I know, and he's he's such a great guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not always the case that when your friend writes a book, you like it. So I'm really glad that I liked this so much. And it's it's based half on a very remote island in Scotland and half in London. Um, and it's about community and family and the families that you have and the families that you choose um and it's just a really beautiful little book i don't want to sort of spoil what happens in it but it's it's very accessible very readable i think i read it in about three sessions um and very evocative um adrian writes really beautifully about both london itself and there's a a love of london that comes through that i really like because so often you get the sort of anti-london sentiment um so it's really nice to have what feels like a love letter to london written from the perspective of this scottish outsider who's down to visit for a few weeks uh and you know just finds the city endlessly fascinating um, but equally, it's lovely about this beautiful Scottish island, which I now want mm. to go and visit. What, what's the so island? That would be my recommendation. Um, well, in the book, it's called Hinba, but I believe it's actually based on a real place that I can't remember the name of now. But it's it's one of the Outer Hebrides. Mm. Oh, it does sound absolutely uh, kind of like dreamy. Um, mm. You raise an interesting point there that... Um, singing the praises of london isn't something which kind of happens in our culture anymore that actually london is is a problem it's it's not really england and it was only when i moved to london in 1995 that i realized very quickly that london just happens to be in a country called england it's not england Mm. You know, it, it is no, so atypical, absolutely. especially zones three into one. The outer zones, yeah. yes, do resemble an England that, that that I know, you know, zones five and six, but three to one, mm. no, you know. No, absolutely. And my, I come from a blended family. My brother is mixed race. Mm-hmm. And I remember when my parents moved out of London, it had quite a profound effect on Mike. He was, I remember him saying to my mum, and, and my dad, I think, when I'm in when I'm in Hackney, people look at me like I'm your son. When I'm in Willin, people look at me like I'm your mugger. And I thought, wow, yeah, that's and that is twenty miles, thirty miles. You know, it really, mm. the difference is you know, half an hour outside of King's Cross, 
and the differences that pronounced. And yet, and that's what makes me so proud of being from London is that community, that, you know, that blend of everything, um, that 24 hour living. I, you know, I love London, but it's, it's the only place in the UK you're not allowed to say you're proud of being from. You know, that, that, I don't know if I'd quite agree with that because I think you can say, you, 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 at least you used to be able to say if you were from the East End of London, and I'm on about the old East End, that you definitely were mm. proud of that. And then th- th- there are... You know, I'm going to think on about this, Emma, and I'm going to come back. I need to think on, I need to cogitate a little bit more. But you, you're definitely on to something. But I mean, it's I, the li- would... liberal metropolitan elite thing, and that is just so tied to being from London that despite there being huge pockets of deprivation, large hmm. working class uh, communities here, everyone from London is considered liberal metropolitan elite, no matter what they do or who they are. Well, but there is another identity signifier in, in all of this. As somebody who's from Birmingham, you know, so the Midlands, um, mm. the further south you go and and i would say kind of starts with birmingham the less there is of real civic identification in the way that somebody from liverpool says i'm from liverpool i'm yeah, from yeah, manchester yeah. people don't say i'm from basildon they don't right no you know people don't say essex maybe yeah essex maybe people don't say i'm from brighton you know mm. there isn't and and i love brighton brighton's a lovely place right the <laughs> further south you get from birmingham there is this erosion of english civic identities people are just like yeah i'm just english i just happen to be brought up in plymouth all right so i think whilst i kind of agree with you it isn't just all around these these mod these relatively new notions of liberal effectness to do with london it is also to do with the fact that, you know, there's 300,000 French nationals in London, 200,000 Italian mm. nationals. It goes on and on and on. And you don't get those uh, demographics in any other English city. But there is also something about regional and civic identity, which is blurred, which is blunted uh, the further south you get. But we should continue this conversation uh, maybe on, on another Mid-Atlantic because... Um, Absolutely. Yeah, because I'm, I'm kind of totally fascinated about shifting ideas of, uh, of of identity. But my takeaway of the last seven days is I saw a great film called uh, The Cold War. And um, I'm well into a bit of superhero punching. Um, always have been ever since I was, I was, a, I was a little boy. And uh, however, when I was a teenager, I wanted to be a filmmaker. And I wanted to be like a a British Derek Jarman. That's actually who I wanted to be. I wanted to make artsy-fartsy films and stuff. <laughs> and I've been watching too many superhero films recently. I, I, I don't regret it. And I, I love Captain Marvel. I will be watching The Avengers. But it was really nice for me actually to go and see an art house indie film in another language, subtitles. So it's Polish in okay. a cinema, um, in a lovely little cinema in a place called Albany, which is just north of Berkeley had a lovely evening so the, the story is it's it's set at the start of the cold war it's 1945 it's a polish musical director 
who is uh, putting together this kind of ensemble, kind of a, a mu uh, kind of dance troupe and musical troupe, which are going to tour Poland and then they tour the communist countries because they're actually very good and they actually go, go to the West. He defects after five or so years. They have this trip to, to East Berlin and he just walks through, I'm going to say Checkpoint Charlie, but it wasn't, it was Russian Shoulders, so whatever the, the Russian Checkpoint was, because uh, you just could then, you could just walk through. Mm. And he just walks through and he ends up in Paris and he becomes um, a jazz pianist. And it's his story with one of his students who, um, you know, she's, she's not young, so there's no ethical uh, reason for him, for them not not to be together and stuff you know she's like in her 20s and whatever and nice. they'll say it's, it's, it's a different time and it's their love affair over 15 years with them being in different countries and what they do to to end up to be together it's shot in black and white the lighting is wonderful the composition of every shot isn't it, sometimes it can get with, with, with a lot of those films that they're overly staged in terms of comp composition. Mm. This wasn't quite like that, but it was beautifully shot, beautifully staged, very captivating. It's Polish, but it had the complete and utter sensibilities of a French uh, film from the 70s and 80s, because it really it's about slightly tortured love uh, and around creativity. You know, lots of kind of like great music and stuff. And, mm. and the opening montage, which is brilliant, where he's traveling around war-torn Poland and he's recording um, locals singing folk tunes. And that sounds, mm. it sounds like, oh my God, it sounds so, so uh, dull and, and worthy. But it's a beautiful haunting little sequence at the start. You don't know where the hell this film is going. So it's yeah. called Cold War utterly lovely if it's at a cinema near you it's not going to be a, be a multiplex because of the very nature of it and stuff please go and watch it because it is awesome very oh, that sounds a, lovely a lovely twist at the end what she does to be with him you're like what i didn't see that coming and then it does call back to something which happens at the start so that's my takeaway the last seven days so have you Emma, seen a film called hmm? blue monday have you seen a film called blue monday no i haven't it's about 20, 25 years old now, I think. But it's set in Newcastle. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a very young Sean Bean and Sting. But the reason I bring it up is it's one of the sort of plots is all based around a Polish jazz um, band that come over to play in the, in the jazz club that Sting runs. Um, and it's a lovely little film. But, uh, so I thought if you like that, you may well enjoy Blue Monday. Ah, you know what? I'm going to give that a, a bit of a watch. It has to be said it's that I've been, as I said, kind of at the start of me talking about this, that I've been, I'm not going to say I've been blockbusted out because I haven't, right? Uh, but I need to reconnect with the types of films that, um, the types of films kind of of, of my youth, really, and mm. films which aren't always about incredibly high stakes on a global scale. You know, there is yeah. something uh, very magical about making something incredibly small and personal and, and intimate and you just get into the mind of, of that person or, or the people, the couple kind of concerned. And, and I love all of that. And so I'm going to give Blue Monday a bit of a watch. And if I don't like it, I'll come back and I'll cuss you. Blame that? me. Exactly. <laughs> that works for me. All right, so just, just 
generally what we do here to wrap up is we just say to our guests uh, what have you been up to recently and how can people find you on social media so uh, I have been writing uh, a lot and I largely journalism but I'm also trying to write possibly a play possibly a screenplay possibly both um, maybe a novel who knows uh, <laughs> um, you can find me on Twitter I'm Emma Burnell underscore um, and you can see a picture of me dressed in a 1950s Americana so that's quite fun fun and folks, um, if you want to follow me on social media, specifically Twitter, I always say there's no real reason to because I hardly ever uh, talk about politics. Uh, but if, if you want to uh, follow me talking about maps and other ephemera, uh, you can follow me on Twitter where I'm at Roy Filter, which is R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. And of course, we are Mid-Atlantic Show, though, again, it's tumbleweed there because I don't really post. But if you just want to go, ah, I'll just kind of support them just because and you never know uh, they might say something of note and of worthiness one day it's at mid-atlantic show on twitter so that's us. I should warn some of your mm -hmm. American listeners that I, while I will talk about both British and American politics, you'll also find quite a lot about the British soap opera Emmerdale on my feed so uh, that's oh, just a warning for you. <laughs> that is the wrong rural soap <laughs> you know, I knew, I knew you and I had to fall out. You know, we spent the there whole we go. last we had to, hour. We had to disagree on something. <laughs> you know, the archers. If you're going to do rural soaps, if you're going to do farming, it's all about the archers. Everybody knows that. It's authentic. <laughs> it's the original, and Emmerdale is just a blatant copy. <laughs> See, that's the Midlands in you. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. It's like fact. The Archers is 1952. What's Emmerdale? The mid 70s? Come on now. They've only just started See, doing so it. It's those just of us who were born in the mid 70s feel that this is perfectly old enough. <laughs> Good answer, you. Are we going to see you again? You're going to come on again? I'd love to. Brilliant. And this is Emma. We loved having you on. Uh, this has been Mid Atlantic, folks. Uh, it was somewhat of a changing of the guard. Uh, don't forget. Uh, good politics is right politics be good to each other and and basically let that inform the way that you see the world uh be open and inclusive to all some people are born with a silver spoon in the, in their mouth some people aren't and the people that aren't it isn't their fault that they haven't been take care we see you all again soon bye bye brilliant there thank you, you go you're awesome i, I like really enjoyed you. that thank you oh, thank you Serduszka, cztery oczy Oj, oj, oj Co płakały we dnie w nocy Oj, oj, oj Czarne oczka, co płaczecie Że się spotkać nie możecie Że się spotkać Nie możecie Mnie matura zakazała Oj, oj, oj Żebym chłopca nie kochała o 
za szyję Będę kochać póki żyję Będę kochać póki Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.